Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm the other pastor here, and it's great to be able to share God's Word with you tonight as we're continuing a sermon series we began last week that we're calling Who's on First? Knowing God by Name. And this Who's on First, many of you are probably aware, is a reference to that 1938 sketch comedy, that sketch by Abbott and Costello, where the two guys are discussing a baseball team, and one's trying to help the other learn the player. But the problem is the players' names are things like who, what, and I don't know. And so this is really an amazing and hilarious sketch. If you haven't seen it, just go and watch it on YouTube. It's easy to find. We don't have time or I'd play it for you, the whole thing right here. It's like 10 minutes long because it's just really awesome. So go check it out. But for us, we're just taking that as a fun way to play off of just that name and this baseball theme and thinking this whole series about who is God. We want to know God by name. And so each week we're looking at a different name or title of God that's given to us in the Bible so that we can know him more deeply, so that we can know his character, we can know his nature, we can know who is this God who we gather to worship. Who is this God whom we approach in prayer? Who is this God and what can we expect when we approach him and even what is expected of us. And so each week along the way, if you didn't get it on your way in, you can grab it on the way out. We're going to have a who's on first trading card for you. And it's really, again, just a, a fun way to reinforce this whole baseball theme and then this whole series. And on this card, you're going to get an image and the name that goes along with that image to help us remember the name of God, as well as some fun statistics on the back, more information, and just help you continue to reflect on the nature of who this God is. So this evening, as we jump in, I'm wondering if you have ever had a coach or maybe a boss or a teacher who was like Mr. Puster. Mr. Puster was my baseball coach for many years growing up. And if the thing is with Mr. Puster, you never asked him if you could play a certain position or if you could hit at a certain time. You just never did that. He would tell you when you were gonna play, if you were gonna play, where you were gonna play. And the problem was he clearly had no idea what he was doing. And you may be wondering how I know this. And the, the reason is because he never let me pitch, but he always let his kid Blake pitch. I mean, I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that Blake was a lefty and could actually throw strikes. I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. But I mean, the thing is that he was tough. It was his team. You didn't really question anything and you did what you were told if you wanted to play. And I just was thinking about this this week, and even if he had the skills and all the connections required, I don't think Mr. Puster would probably be successful as a coach in professional sports today. You know, there's a lot of debate in professional sports about whether you're a player's coach or an authoritarian coach. Have you ever heard those terms? 
So a, a player's coach is somebody who listens to the players, allows them to give input on the way the game could, should work, on the strategy. They're a lot more flexible and they give latitude. They allow the, the players themselves to handle the disruption, disruptions and distractions that may come up in the locker room. They don't usually move toward taking disciplinary action. They're often seen as more caring and personal. And really the theory is that the players will actually give the coach greater authority based on these relationships and the trust that's formed in the relationships. In other words, a player's coach is the anti-Mr. Puster. The Mr. Puster, I mean the authoritarian coach, was the one that, it's his plan, it's his way, he's gonna teach you and tell you what you're supposed to do. There's high expectations for you to perform and that you will listen and respond when you're told. If necessary, discipline will be brought and players were expected to give the coach authority because they're the coach, because it's their role and it's their job. Now there's a lot of debate about whether, which one's better than the other. And there's actually really good arguments probably on both sides and generationally there's probably significant differences between which is better and which is worse. The younger generations tend to lean toward players coaches and the giving of authority based on relationship and trust. And older generations typically rely on the reality of the role as the basis for the authority and the reason that the authority is given. And I wonder as we move into this evening's message, what if it's a false dichotomy? What if it's possible and even necessary for both to be in one? For to be a player's coach and an authoritarian? And with that idea just floating in the background, let's go ahead and jump in this evening to Deuteronomy chapter 10 as we dive into our second name, our second message in this series you can follow along on the screen if you'd like. Listen for God's word speaking to our lives this evening. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And let's pray as we move into God's word. Lord God, we invite you to be the one leading us in this time. That by your spirit, you would be guiding the words of my mouth, the thoughts and meditations of our hearts. Lord, we want to know you more fully. 
We want to know you more deeply. So God, help us to shed the assumptions that we hold so that we can be open to knowing you as you are, as you reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you were with us last week, we discussed a name that you saw all throughout this passage. And the reason you saw it all throughout this passage is because it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's actually over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It was the name Lord, but specifically Lord with a capital L and then small caps O-R-D. So it's all capitals. And in, actually in Hebrew, it's not the word Lord. In Hebrew, it's the, the word Yahweh, or literally translated into English, I am who I am. And so I'd encourage you to go back if you missed last week's message, and you can hear all about that name because it really sets the, the basis for this entire series. Because we're not going to focus on that version of Lord because there was another version of Lord in the passage that was capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Lord. And, and we see that in verse 17, for it says, for the Lord your God, that's capital, all caps, is God of gods and Lord of lords. And so we're going to look at this name, this title, the Lord, which we use frequently. It's common, commonplace for us, isn't it? It's the, the Lord's prayer. It's the Lord's supper. We sing to the Lord. We pray to the Lord. We speak about our relationship with the Lord. And, and so we use this phrase all the time. And in, in Hebrew, the name is Adonai. But what does it actually get at? And do we actually think about it when we use it? Or is it just habit like so many things in our lives? At the root of this word Adonai in Hebrew is the idea of, of Adon, a majestic, great, awesome, amazing, glorious. And, and unfortunately, we use those words in fairly cheap ways. I mean, I, we have awesome cups of coffee. Well, okay, occasionally I have an awesome cup of coffee. I'll be honest. There's awe sometimes when I'm drinking coffee. But you know, we, can, we can have awe at, at all sorts of things, or at least we can say awesome when it's really routine and ordinary, and all we really mean is, oh, that's good, that's nice but it's become commonplace. But this is inviting us to actually consider what brings truly awe into your life. What do you see? What do you experience? What, what is it that moves you to a place where maybe you don't even have words because really all you have is the sound, ah, that can come out of you. This is, this is the encounter with the Lord. It's a move to truly experience, to see, understand him with awe and wonder to recognize that he is glorious. And he shows us how that actually plays out when we dig into the, the rest of the significance of his name. Because literally, Adonai, the Lord, well, Lord literally means one possessed of absolute control. In other words, it's talking about a master, you know, as in a master over a slave, as one, the one who gets to call all of the shots, who has all of the authority, and the expectation is all of those under that authority will do what has been told them to do. This points to the reality that, that the Lord is sovereign. That's a word you may have heard, you may not have. 
John Piper, who's a pastor and a theologian, calls it God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. When we talk about the Lord, we're talking about the fact that he has the right and the power to do whatever it is he wants to do, whatever he's decided to do. In other words, no one else sets the limit on him except for himself. I mean, that, that moves us toward awe in and of itself, doesn't it? When we start to realize, man, how many limitations do you have, do I have? How many, how many times is it the limitations and the frustrations in our lives that cause us to be disappointed? Right, right? We're out of, something's out of our control, our inability to influence an outcome, a situation, to move toward a resolution, and we find ourselves floundering and hopeless, and yet God, who is sovereign, never experiences that, is always in control and able to do what it is that he has decided to do. It is his right, and he has the power to do it. That's pretty amazing. And this, this starts to, to push us though, I think in some places where we get perhaps a little bit uncomfortable when we're really honest about it. Because if this is God who has the right to make a demand, has the right to do whatever he wants to do, is the one who is the master, who's in control, who gets to call the shots, we might, because we're American, we might say, what gives him the right? Okay, maybe we wouldn't vocally, honestly, out loud say that, but we might live with that question in our heart. Or when we look at our lives honestly, we may live in such a way that we deny the fact that God has that right. But why would God have the right to be the Lord, to be the master over you? Because here we are on 4th of July weekend, and we're kind of celebrating the whole fact that we don't have a master over us, right? that we no longer have a monarch who rules and reigns over us. And yet as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as those who find our identity not as a, a people tied to this particular physical land and this country, but our citizenship is truly in heaven, then we find ourselves under a monarch, under the rule and reign and authority of God. So when we start pushing on that button, some of our kind of individualistic, independent tendencies as Americans start to kind of get a little uncomfortable. At least they do for me. And so I might start pushing back. Well, why does he have the right? Does he really have the right? I mean, the reality is, as we see it play out in this passage in verse 14, Moses is reminding the people, as he's reminding us, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Why does God have the right? Well, because it's all his. Heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And last time I checked on the word everything, it still meant everything. And so that includes you and me. Everything in the earth belongs to him. It's his. He made us. We're his. And so he has the authority. He has the right to determine how life is to be lived. He, des he determines how the seasons function. He determines, right, the laws uh, of nature that play themselves out, the laws of science that, that are amazing and beautiful. He determines then also the laws of ethics, of what is right and what is wrong and what is truly a good and full life and what is not. He made us. So he has the right to decide how our life is to be lived. And that's hard. We struggle with that 
Every single day I struggle with that very fundamental, simple reality that my posture is I am the created being and he is the creator. I am the one who is servant. He is in fact Lord and master. We struggle, don't we? Because, I mean, and there's lots of reasons. That's why, that's why Moses has said, don't be stiff-necked. In other words, don't be stubborn anymore. Stop struggling. Stop fighting against what is the natural order of things because you have been made. And so let God then lead you. But why do we struggle? I mean, I, I think we struggle partially because we have a view of God sometimes that's a lot like Mr. Puster where we just kind of think that he's really out to get me. He doesn't want me to have any fun. He doesn't want me to get to pitch and have the moment of glory striking out the last batter in the bottom of the ninth. He just doesn't want that. He's withholding something from me. We have this view of, of God that's like Mr. Puster because I reluctantly had to submit and obey because I still wanted to play baseball. And we're like, oh, we've got we've to submit. We've got to obey because he's God and I'm not, right? I mean, if we're honest about it, we want to be God. We really kind of want those roles to be reversed. It's actually a fundamental, perhaps the fundamental temptation that we carry with us because sin still resides in us. It was the first fundamental temptation back in the Garden of Eden. If you go back and read Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are there in the garden, they have this beautiful and wonderful relationship. They have no problem be being those who are ruled by God because life is beautiful and perfect. Everything is as it should be. And then the serpent comes slithering in and he's like, hey, what's up guys? And long story short, he ultimately tempts them and says, hey, no, 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 you can eat that fruit. God knows that when you eat it, you will be like God. In other words, he knew that the core of the temptation of our human heart is that we get to be God. We don't need him anymore. We get to call the shots. We get to be the authority. We get to decide what's right and what's wrong. We get to decide our truth and live our truth if we so desire. It's the fundamental temptation. And so we want to be like God. I think another reason we struggle with this whole notion of the Lord, the Lordship of God, is because we think about oppression, not submission. See, what, what, we're, being, what we're being taught here is that our lives are to be submitted to God, obedient to his will, his plan, his way, what he wants for us. But automatically, we have decided, conflated the words submission and oppression. Somehow, we've gotten it in our heads because here, oppression is like, is an unjust or cruel use of authority or power, right? It, it, we, we understand this. And we see it in, in the world in lots of different ways. We see it in Mr. Puster sometimes, who just, or, or that boss that you had. Or you see it in, in a parent, perhaps even, that was utilizing their position of authority in your life in a way that, that was abusive, that was hurtful, in a way that really was cruel and not appropriate. It wasn't just, it wasn't right, it wasn't good. And you yet, you did what you were told 
But it wasn't because you voluntarily were putting yourself under their authority. It was because if you didn't, they continued to twist that, to oppress you, to force you into that position of submission, right? And, and we automatically assume that any call for submission must be oppression because there is a, 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 a we have within us the, this suspicion of the use of power that anybody who has power is gonna use it in a way that'll harm us. That would be oppressive, oppression. Submission is voluntarily putting ourselves under the authority of another, right? God, see, God could force our surrender. He could force us into a place where we just do what we're told to do. That's within his right and his power to do so. And yet, he doesn't choose oppression. He chooses submission. He invites the people in this passage, invites us to voluntarily bow our knee before him, no longer be stiff-necked and stubborn, but to intentionally rearrange the priorities of our lives to bring them in alignment and underneath the authority that he has for us. But here's the kicker. It's because it's what's good for us. See, we, we also have this problem when we think about authority. We assume that those who have authority over us are gonna use it in such a way that, that is going to not work out well. But see, we're told in verse 13 to observe God's commands and decrees for your own good. See, do you ever think about that possibility? That the things God commands us to do or not to do, the things he tells us to avoid might be because that's gonna lead us down a painful path. Maybe the things that he's, in, he's commanded us to do is because that's what's going to be the most fulfilling, the most satisfying, the most th that we could live out our God-given image in the world, that we can experience the joy of being fully human and fully alive. What if that was the case? And what if submission and obedience led to the opportunity for the fullness of, the, of enjoying meaning and satisfaction in life? Because that's, that's what we're being invited into. Submit so that you can experience and we can experience the fullness of life. It's for your good. And avoid the things that are called sin, not just because it's a rule, not just because God says, mm -mm -mm, don't do that. That's naughty. It's not about being naughty. It's about this is horrible for you. This will destroy your soul. This will separate you from the life God intended for you. It's not what you're made for. And yet we have within us this wrestling match that goes on because the reality is sin, sin is still alive within us and we're still trying to, to submit ourselves under the authority of God. And we have hearts that are ultimately actually divided. Even once we've come to a place of saying yes to Jesus, there's still within us this divide. And we have these desires that pull us away from what God's will and his intent and his purpose, pull us away from the commands that he's given us. And it's because, as we're reminded in Jeremiah chapter 17, 9, the heart, our heart, the place of our desire and our motivation, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Hear that warning for all of us. The heart is deceitful beyond all else, all things, and beyond cure. And so we have this desire 
of a heart that is deceitful. And we have God inviting us to this life submitted to his authority. But that's not the approach to the heart that is common in our world right now. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I've referred to it many times from this spot. We live in a world of Disney theology that says, follow your heart. That says your heart could never lead you astray. If you want it, it must be good for you because ultimately fulfilling your desires is what life is all about. And we're being told here that, hey, your desires that come from your heart, they're going to deceive you because they can become lords in our lives, but not good and benevolent lords that are seeking the best for us, but can become dictators that are oppressive, that are, uh, that are slave drivers, that compel us and move us in ways that will actually suck life right out of us. We have all sorts of other lords that we can follow. We have the, the lords of sexual desire. We have the lords of career and ambition. We have the lords of success. We have the lords of, of approval and people pleasing and people seeking. We have the lords of, of affirmation. We have the lords that, that can rule in our hearts in such a way that are we going to submit under the authority of God? No, I'm going to submit to this Lord because somewhere inside of me, I've believed in that deceitful place that maybe that Lord could finally give me what I'm looking for. And God's saying, man, that's, it's not going to work. It's not good for you. You're going to reach the end of your days empty. And so he invites us to the Lord of lords, the one who is ultimately Lord over all of those little lords, all of those other lords that we might have in our life. And we're being invited to submit to his lordship, to his rule and his reign. And it, it's good for us because of the character of God that we see in this passage, the character of the Lord who reigns and rules. See, the nature of God's rule and reign is one that is just and is righteous. And we see it very clearly in this passage. I mean, right as he reveals himself as the Lord of Lords in that same verse, it says that he shows no partiality, that he takes no bribes. In other words, the Lord will never be influenced by anyone else or any other force to look at you in a way that is unfair, unjust, and look at you in any other way than he has made you and the reality of who you are. I mean, that's good news. So when the master takes an inventory of your life, you can be sure that it is honest and it is true. You can be sure that it is equitable and it is just. You can be sure that whenever God sees you, he sees you as you truly are. We see that he, he is just and he is righteous because he is ultimately the one who is in, in working on behalf of the fatherless, those orphans who would have been the most vulnerable among peoples. He's, he's the one who is on the side of the widows. He's the one who was feeding and clothing the poor and the foreigners who were living among them. So he was, he's demonstrating a character and a quality of his rule and his reign that those who are vulnerable, those who are the most needy, those who are the most on the outside typically, who are the least cared for, are the ones that he's going to actively care for. Is that not a Lord that you would want to draw near to? 
One who, one who will actively work in such a way that if that's how he treats those who are on the edge and marginalized, will he not also care for the rest? Will he not also care for you? So we, but we also see in this passage that God is not just the authoritarian coach, though it's there. He's the coach. He's God. Everything on heaven and earth is his. He's the Lord, and so he does have the right and have the authority. But he's also the player's coach, if I can continue that metaphor. He's with us. He's for us. He's inviting us and the people in this passage to ascribe him authority as Lord through a trusting personal relationship. And so he doesn't just say, obey and submit because I said so. He says, obey. He says, submit. He says, walk in my ways. He says, yes, fear me as a part of that reality that we fear the God who is above and over all things. But he also says, yeah, but it's because I am your God. I'm the one you praise. I'm the one who performed great and awesome miracles for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you from a life of slavery. You know, when, when your ancestors went down, there were only 70 of them. But now you're as numerous as the stars in the sky. I've taken care of you for all of these years. I've provided for you. I have protected you. I am the God who is worthy of your trust. And here's all of the reasons why. And I think this is an invitation for us to give the Lord a little bit more authority than you've given him now and see what he'll do with it. Because he's inviting us to put our trust in him, not just because he said so, but because he is God and because he's gonna show up and be faithful with every little bit that we will allow him to have authority over, he will continue to show up and be gracious and faithful in that. And so give it a try. And the reality is we all want, maybe, maybe we don't all, that's not a fair assumption, but we perhaps want to be surrendered fully. We want to give our life completely to the Lordship of God. And yet we can, if we take that inventory, we know there's places where we've held back. We know there's places where we're struggling to do so. We give him a little bit more and see what he'll do with it. Invite him to prove himself trustworthy so that you can give him even greater authority based on him showing up. Give him the authority based on trust and faith not just based on the fact that he's God. I think this is part of what it's, the invitation is to not just fear him, but to love him, to walk in a relationship with him, to give your heart over to him. And I don't know if, it, I hope you have people in your life that you love, but did it happen instantaneously? I mean, maybe if it was your child, probably. Every other relationship that I can think of, it happened over time. I think even from a child to a parent, it happens over time. But parents show up and prove to be faithful and they prove to provide and they prove to be the, the go-to one. And so the, actually the child learns, so it doesn't have to be their biological parent, it can be their adoptive parent. And they learn to love that parent because they show up consistently over and over again. Every other relationship in our lives that we are invited to love someone man, it seems like it happens incrementally and it seems like it happens over time. And I think the invitation is to let it happen incrementally and let it grow in your relationship with God. Let it grow. But ultimately it is 
at a place to, to bring us under his lordship, under his authority, where then we are, in, are called to do what he tells us to do, to live in such a way that we reflect his justice, his holiness, his perfection, in a way that does recognize that he is God. But here's perhaps the greatest place where he shows up as the Lord, as the one who isn't just the sovereign who rules, but is also the one who rules with a gracious and loving hand. Because God also knows that we are going to fail at that, that we have failed at that. You may have found that you failed at that a long time ago, and actually this whole time, all you've been thinking about is the ways that you've failed at that. And the great part is that the Lord is not just the Lord to hold that over you and lord it over you as, as a failure to then shame you and guilt you and manipulate you into obedience. The Lord actually wants to invite you into a loving submission. And we actually read about it in our earlier reading from Philippians 2. See, Philippians is this letter written to the, the early church. You know, roughly 50s, 60s AD, when the church was under attack from the Roman Empire. Persecution, Christians were being, were being murdered, the whole Colosseum complex, the, you just go and you can, you can see all the history. And in this time, part of the reason that they were being persecuted was because the Christians refused to actually go along with the flow of everybody else. Because in the Roman Empire, there was, there was one Lord. There was a confession that every, everybody had to make. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one who has the right and power to do whatever he wants to do. Caesar is the sovereign who rules over us and under whose authority that we live and we move. And the Christians recognize, no, our citizenship is not here in Rome. Our citizenship is not on this earth. We only have one who rules over us with authority as the Lord, and that is Jesus is Lord. That was the original confession of the church. And it stood in stark contrast to the confession of the world. And we live in a world that may not be saying Caesar is Lord, but we may, we're probably saying money is Lord. And we're saying sex, sex is Lord. And we're saying, oh, my body is Lord. And we're saying whatever I want is Lord. And we're saying we've got all these agendas, all these little lords. And yet in the middle of that, the confession that Jesus is Lord is still radical. And that's what we're being invited to is that confession and a lifestyle that aligns with that confession. But here's the thing. In this passage in Philippians, we're told that Jesus is Lord, absolutely. But Jesus was also the truly, perfectly submissive and obedient one. Where we have failed in our obedience, we have failed in our submission, we have failed to live out the, the reality of his lordship, we are reminded that he was obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross taking on the condemnation of our guilt, of our shame, of our sin, of our separation from God, taking on our failure, taking on our rebellion and rejection of the lordship of God and in its place offering us salvation, healing, hope, forgiveness, joy, peace, a relationship restored with God, a relationship renewed to the place where we're given the chance once again to bow our knee. See, the Lord, Jesus, 
was the obedient one when we have failed. But he is also the Lord who is majestic, who is sovereign, who is just, who is righteous, who is gracious, who is loving. And when we come to this table, we celebrate this Lord. This Lord that, yes, he rules and he reigns, but also this Lord who in our place substituted himself. When we couldn't be obedient, we can't be obedient in our sin and yet offered us new life. And so I'm gonna invite you to prepare your hearts, prepare your minds to receive from him his grace. Today, I'm gonna invite Pastor Christian to come up and let's pray as we prepare to meet our Lord at this table. Heavenly Father, great God, Lord of Lords, we approach you with, with perhaps a, a little bit more of awe and wonder as we reflect on the reality that you are the one who has made all of heaven and earth, that you're the one who rules and who reigns over all things, that you are the one who has the right to reign. And yet, Lord, you are also the one who has designed life itself for our good we recognize that we have not willingly submitted. That we still live lives that are in rebellion, lives that we still want to be God. We still want to call the shots. We still want to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's true for us. We confess that before you. We ask, Lord, that you, in these moments, in this moment of quiet, that you would show us the places in our lives where we're still holding on to lordship so that we can acknowledge it before you. Lord, we thank you that what we see at this table is your awesome majesty and your amazing obedience and submission, the true son to the father, the Lord Jesus Christ, laying his life down for us so that we could be bought back, so that we could have life that is new again. Holy Spirit, in this moment, may you take that truth and may you bury it deep within our heart and our soul. May we experience a bit more of your love and your grace that we can walk away from the table joyfully surrendering, joyfully submitting to your Lordship. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 